Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Those two documents, which formalized Cornwallis' surrender and which then led to the end of the war and to American independence, although that was like a year and a half or so later, they still exist after 241 years. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor William Reynolds discussing the surrender documents from the Battle of Yorktown. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor William Reynolds, and he'll be discussing the surrender documents from the Battle of Yorktown. Many said the Battle of Yorktown was the moment that turned the world upside down. And it stands as one of those really important, really impressive benchmarks in the American Revolution. It's often misunderstood as the end of the war, uh, which it wasn't. The war raged for another year in the West. Uh, But it was one of those critical moments in the history of the fighting in the East and truly the end of large combat operations in the East. William Reynolds today is going to talk about the fairly complicated realities of negotiating a surrender. It's much more difficult than waving a white flag, as we'll see. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with William Reynolds. William Reynolds, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Brady. Good to be back. Tell us about your background. Okay. Um, I have degrees in engineering and uh, worked in that field for roughly 40 years. Uh, I'm retired now and uh, indulging what's really a, a lifelong interest in history, particularly uh, American history, history of the revolution, and uh, and other aspects of American history. But now I can uh, indulge those interests, and uh, especially the ones that, uh, from what I can tell, have not been thoroughly researched. The um, Yorktown siege interests me particularly because one of my ancestors was there serving in the Virginia militia, quite a, quite a number of Virginia militia were there, um, and uh, he was one of them, and so that got me interested in the battle or the, or the siege and, uh, and, and many, many other aspects of it, uh, which, of course, uh, resulted in some of the articles I've written. What first drew your interest into this topic? I've authored uh, several articles for uh, all the siege, both for Journal of the American Revolution and for uh, the magazine Military Collector and Historian. And in the course of research for the uh, for those articles, I began to wonder where are the original surrender documents. I mean, I, I, I wasn't sure they really existed, but I thought I was. Um, I just wondered where they were. They're, they're, they were called the Articles of Capitulation. That's that's kind of a little grandiose term for them, but uh, I wanted to find out where they are today. Then I found Randolph Adams' 1939 article uh, 
written uh, about a number of missing, so-called missing documents from archives. And he, he claimed that uh, there was no copy in the U.S. And that intrigued me. Um, then for recent articles I read said, oh, they exist and, and here's where they are. So I decided to, to look for myself and see what I could find. And that, that resulted in uh, this article. Give us a quick history of the surrender at Yorktown. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll get an answer to a later question. I'll get to uh, sort of how he came to be there. But Cornwallis, uh, the, the British commander, notified General Washington on the morning of October 17, 1781, after he'd been uh, bombarded for over a week, that he was ready to surrender. The two uh, exchanged several letters that essentially set the main points uh, that uh, b- between the two, uh, the two parties, I say the two, but the French were also involved. Washington did the writing for the Allies and uh, Cornwallis for the British. And they swapped letters and got the main point settled and then point, appointed two commissioners, each uh, whose job it was to come up with the final surrender document, the details, if you will. Those four met the afternoon of October 18th, a session that lasted really too late in, in, into the night. The exact time is not, um, not clear, but it's probably 10 or 11 o'clock at night on the 18th before those four had pretty much gotten their work done. Washington then had two copies of the final version drawn up, formally drawn up, and uh, those are the two, of course, that I was looking for. And Cornwallis signed them the morning of October 19th. So the whole thing, really the whole process took about two days. The formal surrender ceremony then took place later on the 19th. And then, uh, of course, the uh, prisoners marched off a couple of days later and, and things began to... Uh, the parties begin to all go their separate ways, but that that's sort of some little sketch of the of the surrender uh, process. What did this surrender process look like? Well, uh, first, just a tiny bit of background on, on how all these guys came to be at this particular point, uh, physical location, Yorktown. Uh, Cornwallis put his army to Yorktown uh, a month or so earlier to secure a deep water harbor for the Royal Navy. Uh, in the Atlantic states, he got trapped there by the French fleet under uh, de Grasse and the Allied army, that's the French and the, and the Continental, under Washington. The b- bombardment of the British by the Continental and French artillerymen started uh, October 9th and continued to the 17th, pretty much around the clock, and heavily damaged the, the British works and and, and their end artillery pretty much dismounted and, and destroyed a lot of the artillery. Killed 156 soldiers and sailors that were ashore with the soldiers and wounded 326. So at that point, Carlos, he really had no option. He notified Washington on October 17th that he was ready to surrender and, and they swapped letters, as I've already said. And, and on the 19th, the surrender took place. Um, it, it was pretty formal. The uh, French and the um, Americans lined up on two sides of a, of a particular road there south of Yorktown, and the British marched out uh, between the two lines to a, a field nearby and, and uh, gave up their weapons and marched back to town. Uh, I don't know how, I've, 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 I'm sure I've read somewhere how long this took. I, I'm not, and that's speculative, but probably, I don't know, an hour or two, 
uh, to most, I would guess. And it was over, and uh, the ceremony was over, and from there, uh, the terms of the uh, of the uh, surrender agreement were implemented. How did the two commanders correspond before the surrender? Uh, Washington, well, Cornwallis initially, of course, uh, proposed surrender, and Washington accepted it. And, and this this was via letters, uh, formal letters written out that were couriered back and forth between the two headquarters. And just for reference, uh, Washington's headquarters uh, behind the, uh, the Allied lines were about three miles, roughly three miles uh, from Cornwallis's headquarters. So someone had been presumably on horseback carrying the letters back and forth between the two parties. Uh, that's not named anywhere, but uh, it was presumably the aides to the two generals. The letters exist. Um, and uh, so you can kind of see the course of the, the negotiations in terms of uh, what the, the two generals were writing each other. But once those primary terms were agreed, and it, it were, there were two or three letters on the part of each, each general uh, over the course of the afternoon, the morning, late morning and afternoon of October uh, 17 and the morning of the 18th. Uh, once those uh, letters were had been swapped and uh, the primary terms had been agreed. The uh, the two commissioners from each side that had been appointed got together and um, and negotiated the the details. If you could talk about the structure of the surrender for us, <laughs> right, right. Um, well, the, the while there are a number, of, like you say, a number of points that are formally written out, and it took eight or nine pages of of a text to uh, to capture all that detail. The essence of it is this: um, Cornwallis it sets out at the beginning. Cornwallis surrendered his men and their all their arms and equipment, everything except personal items, um, the in, individual items each soldier or or officer owned. Um, the rank and file soldiers, that's the lion's share of the men there, became prisoners of war to the, to the United States. Uh, Cornwallis had tried to, to uh, just get the U.S. to agree to, to parole them, in, in which case they could have gone back to Europe. Of course, Washington's problem with that was they just, all they would do is displace an equal number of British soldiers elsewhere that could come back here and be fighting again. So he said, no, no they, they, they're going to be prisoners. And Cornwallis had agreed to that. Most of the officers were paroles. That's the point in the the, uh, the articles of capitulation. Um, that then they, they were free to, to go back if they wanted to, to, to Europe. Um, but they were on, on parole. In other words, they, they couldn't take up arms against the uh, Americans again until they were exchanged formally. And there was a whole process for that that I didn't get into in the article, and that pretty much existed um, any surrender in that time. Uh, a certain number of the article of one article said a certain number of the officers uh, would that would be allowed to stay with the men in captivity to sort of look after their well-being and provide medical care and so on. Uh, several articles uh, addressed the, the sort of the individual needs you might say of the men, hospitals transportation of baggage um, for officers and for uh, medical staff. Um, 
and the, the uh, retention of personal items by uh, all the surrendered men. Um, one specific article said that all the shipping, and these, these were the ships, both Royal Navy and commercial, that had brought uh, Cornwallis and his troops up from, from where they had been previously at Portsmouth, Virginia, to, uh, to Yorktown, there were quite a, quite a number of ships, I think something under 100, but quite a number, including all the small ones. They were to become property of the French Navy, and, and they did so. And then, of course, one of the articles uh, described the physical surrender process that we just talked about, how, how they would march out uh, with their, their drums beating a certain uh, tune at a certain point in time and, and where they would go and so on, that, that, that the, the actual uh, physical aspects of the surrender process. But that, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. There, there, there were quite a number of articles, but they, um, those are the points that they covered. What was unique about this surrender compared to others? Well, uh, I, I'm not. I, I think each, probably each of those surrenders uh, in in that era, any surrender of a big army like that was probably unique. Um, I mean, it had its own particular character. This this one has um, several points that uh, I'd like to mention. One is is purely the timing of it. Um, it turns out that exactly four years. Previously, that, that is to, to, to the to the day that Cornwallis approached Washington, October seventeenth. Four years previous to that date, General Burgoyne surrendered uh, another British army to Continental forces at Saratoga, New York. That was that was quite a, a uh, coincidence. Everybody at the time remarked, and people still do. Uh, at Yorktown, of course, uh, Cornwallis surrendered his entire army to the combined forces of U.S. and France. Uh, these were the only two armies, British armies, to surrender to Continental forces in the entire uh, Revolutionary War. So it was it was kind of odd that they, they both surrenders took place exactly four years apart. The second um, point is that the, the length of the siege uh, was the, uh, the actual bombardment portion of the siege was only eight days. Now, uh, virtually, if you read the literature of the period, virtually everyone expected that process to take a lot longer. Some some thought it would take as long as a month. Um, General Knox, who was the uh, head of the Continental Artillery, had written his wife the day before um, Cornwallis told Washington he was ready to surrender. And he in, in that letter, he says he hoped this, that the siege would end in 10 to 12 days. So the length of it, the short length of it, was quite a surprise to everybody. That and that probably is unique. I, I think sieges of this type in Europe at the time probably lasted a lot longer. Then the the third point that that uh, I think is interesting is this, sort of the circumstances surrounding the siege, bringing the British fleet from the, I mean the French fleet from the West Indies, and the Continental French uh, Army contingent from the Hudson River, which was roughly a 450-mile march, bringing all that uh, those to Yorktown at almost exactly the same point in time so they could surrender Cornwallis and keep him from escaping from that area and force a surrender, that, that was an amazing accomplishment. Um, that particular aspect, I think, of the surrender is, is was probably unique for, for, the, for that, that period of time and, frankly, any time in, in recent history. Uh, that, that's probably never occurred that 
that the forces converged so quickly and surrounded the enemy and uh, forces surrendered. Talk about the discrepancy you found regarding signatures on the surrender documents. Sure. You're speaking, of course, of the, the fact that the, the U.S. copy, which is in the Library of Congress, uh, of the original uh, articles, was signed only by the British, while the, the copy that's in the U.K. National Archives, the one that, that Cornwallis ultimately received, was signed by the British, the Americans, and the French. Uh, that's really not a discrepancy. Uh, it just reflects what each party needed. If you think about it, uh, Cornwallis, before he, he could surrender, uh, he, he really had to have the Allies' signature on the document that guaranteed all the provisions uh, made for his, not, not just the surrender, but the provisions made for his men as prisoners. The fact they would could keep their private property, the fact that they would have access to medical treatment. Uh, Parole for the officers, officers to to, to stay with um, some of the uh, or all of the um, rank and file to to be sure they were properly looked after. Um, he he had to have the French and the Americans agree to that and and sign something. On the other hand, uh, Washington his his objectives were totally different. He focused on the surrender, the disarmament of the British troops and their dispersal to POW camps uh, to get them away from the coast where they might be rescued by by, uh, another British force. And for that, the only signature he needed was Cornwallis. So once you consider what the needs of each commander were, the signatures on the the copy of the documents that they received make all the sense in the world. Um, Of course, the, the, the physical process was once the, uh, the two two documents were drawn up. Washington sent them to Cornwallis. He signed them both, sent them back to to Washington. Washington and and Rochambeau and and Barris for the French uh, signed one copy and sent it back to to Cornwallis. They didn't sign the other copy for the reason I just said. It, it would be uh, it would really be of no reason. What was your major takeaway after examining these documents? Um, well, it, it was really the the objective I had the, at the beginning. And that's confirmation that the original documents, the the, the, the two copies made really uh, during the night and early morning of, of October 19th, 1781, those two documents, which formalized Cornwall's surrender and which then led to the end of the war, and to American independence, although that was like a year and a half or so later, they still exist after 241 years. I mean, I just think that's, of course, a lot of documents from that era do, but it's just the documents that achieve that uh, still exist, and you can you can actually still look at them and, and uh, study them. As an aside, uh, however, I, I was surprised that when I began to compare them with uh, the various printed copies of the documents that have been made in, in, in uh, several different books over oh, 150 years or so. I was surprised that there were slight differences between the printed copy and the originals until I realized that the, that was a result of the people that compiled those, those printed copies were working from the uh, Cornwallis pamphlet that I mentioned in the article that was written in 1783 instead of going back to the original documents 
and working from them. And uh, that, that, that was a bit of an eye-opener. Uh, that you're, uh, From one book to another, people essentially, I think, just went back and copied the last one that was printed. It's really hard to say, but uh, for over, over 100 and some years, people have sort of, sort of uh, used the, the Cornwallis pamphlet, and, and that resulted in just a few, not, not significant, but a few... Uh, changes here and there from the originals. The main one being, and the way I discovered that was looking, uh, trying to find out why uh, so many of them contained the both signature headers from both the signature header for for the U.S. document is different from the one that's on the U.K. document. Yet most of the printed copies contain both, and I was trying to figure out why that was, and the, the reason was that that. Cornwallis did that in his pamphlet, and everybody else just copied it. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Well, it's, it's an interesting question, Brady, and I've, I've pondered that one for a while. I guess the, the one thing that came to my mind was uh, the, the how easy it was. It, I mean, it, it was a lot of effort for, for those guys and their aides and so on, but still, just think how easy it was for the principals, and that is the generals involved, to develop and execute the surrender document in two days uh, and write it out and, and, and literally within a matter of hours, all sign it. Uh, I just think that process today would take, uh, who knows, I think it would be a, a vastly different process with a lot more people involved and, and uh, so on. And, and I should add to that um, while they did it in two days and, and the surrender took place, they, the parties all pretty much uh, implemented the, 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 uh, the uh, not only the word but the intent of the surrender um, for the next couple of years until the end of the war. Uh, but the, but Washington, Cornwallis, and, and Rochambeau basically um, put the thing together in two days and, and didn't they didn't have their attorneys look at it or anything. They just wrote it, had it signed, and got, got on with business. William Reynolds, thanks again. You're quite welcome, Brady. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.